Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Anna Mill and Luke Jones, authors of the recently published graphic novel Square Eyes. Mill and Jones both studied architecture at the Bartlett and are currently teaching at the Cass School of Architecture in London. In addition, Mills is an accomplished illustrator, while Jones is a co-host of the architecture podcast about buildings and cities. In 2010, after coming runner-up in a graphic short story prize, they set out to turn their entry into a fully-fledged graphic novel. Called Square Eyes, it's about a future city redefined by augmented reality. I met with Mill and Jones this past January at their home in Hackney, where we talked about, among other things, the art of building new worlds in science fiction, developing hypothetical interfaces for a technology that does not yet exist, and how graphic novels can help us think differently about how buildings are designed. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. introduce people who aren't familiar with the book mm. it's a graphic novel about augmented reality essentially yes and there is a description and someone else described it as being set in a future um gradually dissolving into its own digital reflection um and so just to give listeners a sense of what we're actually dealing with it's a future urban environment uh with this um incredibly luscious augmented reality overlay yes <laughs> um but uh contrasted with parts of the city that are completely um abandoned uh, and the intention with that was that there's a possibility that there, there could be parts of the city which are not um suitable for being fully uh integrated with the new augmented reality technologies and that we'll end up with a situation where new neighbourhoods are built entirely with the intention that they're AR-enabled, and so they might have these kind of very smooth, grey, mid-grey surfaces in the actual physical um, built environment, which are basically intended just to be the canvas that Mm. augmented reality can be applied on top of. So... um, when I was drawing that, we made a decision that the, the pieces of, of the city that are full of augmented reality would be in full colour, and the pieces of the city that don't have any augmented reality would be grayscale, um, to try and really underlie that, underline that contrast. Um, but also, in order to use the, um, the qualities of black and white images, in order to 
highlight the, the beautiful kind of texture of, of these old materials and, and objects and make them as considered and full of um, life and interest as the augmented reality parts of the city are. Mm. I'm just looking at the opening spread, which is as you described in black and white, where the protagonist has just been um, discharged from a mandatory, is it renaturing facility? Yeah, I think that that's what it's meant to be. <laughs> that's one of the things which is, I mean, that's one of the things which I think survived from the original short story as well, was that, uh, yeah. But there are hundreds of uh, small panels depicting her uh, <coughs> kind of transition back into this augmented city. Uh, but before she arrives there, uh, we have this kind of nasty, disgusting uh, underground environment full of like trash <laughs> and um, it's a kind of abandoned space but one that's also like very um, delicious to look at but I think what it's like capturing at the beginning is this feeling that we're also familiar with and it's that feeling of when um, the Wi-Fi is cut out yes. and we're forced to like <laughs> confront this environment all of a sudden no absolutely and the um, and when the yeah when the Wi-Fi is cut out, that's um, it's a it's a very apt comparison. You initially find it extremely frustrating, and um, and you get very impatient about everything. But then, if you, if the Wi-Fi stays cut out for a significant amount of time, you start to um, remember that there are interesting things. Sounds a bit healthy. Outside yeah. the internet. <laughs> I think just going back to the thing that you were talking about, I mean, the idea... That was just sort of a speculation, wasn't it? I mean, it doesn't... In reality, that's probably one of the things which is sort of immediately anachronistic, is the idea that maybe AR can't map onto some things mm. better, you know, needs certain types of services to map onto. I think that's probably, like, not really going to be a thing but I think what was more important about that was the idea that each something which was also in the original short story was was that idea that between the digital city and the physical city there would be this covering up that would be going on and also that in some way that it'd be like a kind of accelerated entropy that would be going on in the in the real world and that like every uh, like every kind of big technological shift in the history of urbanism, there would be uh, this like strong destructive element that would go on. So the, I mean, it's kind of it's not necessarily that's not necessarily a kind of future extrapolation. It's more of a it's more of just of an, an, an indicative thing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I guess there's like two lines of thought to follow now. One is the plot and one is the kind of aesthetics mm -hmm. of the project. Maybe we'll start with the aesthetics and then move to story. But the question stands for both these tangents and it's a question of like, how do you make a world? <laughs> um, because there's so many possible ways of representing a future urban environment and um, of kind of unfolding a dystopian story about our demise as experienced through the rise of technology. But um, the style of the kind of environment that you've built, it's kind of its own. It's its own environment in a way. Like you've kind of created 
a world from scratch. And, uh, and I'm wondering, like, how do you do that? This is a kind of architectural question, I guess. How do you take a snapshot of an urban scene, for example, um, and make us believe that there's a, an expanse uh, beyond it? And so I guess the question under that is, like, what kind of references were you looking at? When uh, we were a few years in, we went to um, Tokyo on holiday, and it was at once um, wonderful and quite annoying to see that a lot of the way that I'd been drawing this city really just existed in Tokyo already. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I had been using references a bit like that of these... Um, these cities that are um, at once chaotic but also teeming with interesting things so I guess Hong Kong and Tokyo and um, I think the idea so the way that we actually pitched the book was that we wrote this extremely long proposal which I think laid out in a way a lot of what of it described in words actually what the world would be like I think in terms of the city one of the ideas that we were driving at was that it was kind of the most contradictory sort of place that it would have. Well, a bit like, I mean, the drawing, there's a drawing on the wall, which is a, um, which is something which was done, I think, around the, the, around that time, right? Where you see Laird, this sort of thing that looks a little bit like a, a kind of Victorian terrace, and then something which looks like a London underground building, and then something on top of it which is like a little bit of marooned bit of a half-built Sicilian motorway and then something which looks a bit like one of the buildings from the city of London but in a sort of advanced state of disrepair and then but all kind of impossibly compressed onto on top of one another and I th so I think one of the things that we were interested in was the possibility of, of of those kind of effects which are kind of landscape effects but achieved with architecture there are literal graphic novel precedents which are unavoidable like um like akira um by katsuhiro otomo which is like probably the number is the number one reference of of any kind there's in terms of world on the subject of world building there's a sort of foundational uh maxim which is um which alan moore has articulated which is the idea that you have to know vastly more about the world than you than you show so that the that the reason why it feels like there's a much bigger world than is in the frame is that there really is a big much bigger world than is in the frame that you mm. have to you have to have an idea of otherwise it can't resolve itself um convincingly and in fact there was a, a sort of much bigger world than we wrote in some of the early drafts and then those early drafts had to get condensed yeah. significantly to become um, <coughs> what the story finally was because um, we had no experience of doing a graphic novel and we didn't really realise how what a small amount of story you can fit into a book when, you're, when you have to draw it all we, fa we found a way of telling the story which is a bit elliptical we found a way of making it work with kind of dreams and this sense of not quite understand, like this sort of thresholdless condition between memory, dream, experience, and everything else like that. And virtual reality and mm, augmented um, yeah. reality, of course. Mm. Yeah. So everything's sort of merging together a bit, which um, kind of happily suited both the topic and uh, our way of writing and drawing the narrative. Yeah. 
Um, but I think um, I think you're right. I think that the sort of layers of the city were really important, and there are parts. I mean, in this scene, it's it's pretty obvious that you know the things that were really important were this this feeling that there are obviously there are um, sort of societal layers, but mm. they they really are kind of physically visible. So there are um, all of these different public private spaces that are all controlled by corporations and even all of these walkways that you can only go on if you're one of the people on the higher higher tier mm, yeah um, yeah so there's a scene later on where the uh, main character is boarding a double-decker bus and uh, there uh, she's kind of barred from the upper floor which is ad free yeah. yes <laughs> it has large picture windows yeah <laughs> Exactly. But there's, yeah, I mean, there's a real um, kind of savviness to uh, this, the imminent social stratifications that we experience in public. Mm-hmm. We will, will be experiencing yeah. in public spaces. Absolutely. And a worry that once you're kind of cast in one of these spheres, that it's, it's quite hard to break, it, break out of that and into another one because your whole experience is kind of bounded by what you're allowed to see within that that tier um and yeah so she's she's a person that used to be in one of the higher the higher levels and has mm. been cast down to the yeah. lowest level let's yeah. talk a bit about finn for a second because this is the main character and her kind of identity is partially what's driving the story yeah so she is a software developer who is in some kind of amnesiac state um and can't remember exactly what happened, but has pioneered a new um, AR uh, program, which has been co-opted by a large ominous corporation. Mm. And she's kind of, throughout the span of the the, um, story, putting the pieces back together and trying to understand what happened and um, I guess to a certain extent how things can be righted again. Mm. So why did you guys choose um, her as the main character, like a software developer, I guess in a lot of ways it seems perfect. The thing which came first was the idea of someone who'd had this kind of like, this, who was experiencing this surreally sort of virtually infused reality on the other side of a sort of a break, a kind of psychological break, and um, was in the in the original short comic was kind of able to see it from a different perspective but in this I think was kind of actually experiencing um, this real doubt about about you know one her whole kind of you know mental formation what is what she remembers what's real I mean it sounds um, on the surface it sort of sounds like a classic delusion doesn't it I think there was. Um, I I just remembered recently actually that there was a, a whole version of this story where, um, what had happened in her past was that her and her friends had invented a sort of game that had had horrible consequences. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'd completely forgotten about that. Yeah. So it sort of went through lots of different iterations of of who she was and what her backstory was. But I think that the um, <coughs> the the thing that sort of stayed was that there'd been something that had kind of um, caused a crisis of some kind yeah. and had changed her social status and I think that came a bit from 
um, seeing again and again these these news stories where someone is um, is fated for something they've done and then fairly immediately after everyone says that they're wonderful they're comes a big crash where they discover that actually they've done something terrible or said something oh, terrible. Oh yeah, the kind of reputational uh, yeah, yeah, you get cancelled in, uh, yeah, the kind of cycle between being fated and being cancelled is like about a week in some cases. Mm-hmm. And some of it has faded into the past a bit. We had uh, at times longer bits where uh, because of the sort of automated nature of um, the like social layer she would find it very difficult to get in touch with other friends and so it would be as if she'd stopped existing for them and she would be trying to it's hinted at at the start but there was going to be a, a bigger a bigger thing to do with with that so that in, in some way it would be possible by a kind of like transposition in the great um, sort of spreadsheet of identity for your whole life to uh, to disappear in some way, but then that you would experience it not as a crisis, but as this like real, uh, this kind of narcissistic annoyance that it doesn't see you the way you really are. Mm. But then that that might still drive you towards um, a, like a, a quite an interesting and meaningful resolution. Mm. The I'm just thinking back to the first um, comic strip that won the. Uh award eight years ago and the fact that it, like it seemed like it wanted to be a kind of indictment mm. against a certain kind of technology and um, expose uh, the kind of addiction that we're all aware of and um, compelled by now and it ends on a kind of cynical note because <laughs> the main character I guess the character that becomes Finn in this mm. version of the story she has been cut out or she has been divorced from mm. a, a certain type of uh, augmented reality that her friend is completely engulfed by. Yeah. And she can see the forest for the trees to a certain extent, and yet she doesn't like what she sees. Yeah. She, or specifically, she doesn't like the voice in her head. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, is kind of saying, we're probably better off to drown that out and take part wholeheartedly in this kind of carnival of of image and distraction and so like what is the new book concluding or what is this current version of of the story concluding actually does it still have that kind of cynical aspect to it i think it's meant to be less cynical than that we were definitely against the idea that the ending would be an overturning of the world order because that didn't ring true in some way like there aren't I'm not sure there are these um, these kind of miracles of like emancipation that happen I think that the world is more difficult than that but equally I mean I'm definitely less I think we definitely are less sort of cynical than than that sounds um, we were a bit off put by the idea of having this yeah this idea that um, this our one character is going to is going to completely undo a massive corporation it didn't really seem realistic so we tried to kind of imply at the end that at least she thinks that she might be yeah going to do something about it 
but whether she really will or not is, is, is left open. back for a second and approach the graphic novel from the position of an architect mm. which you both are I'm not I'm well I'm not a fully qualified architect but you both studied architecture we're both architects by formation yeah yeah um, so you, you actually you both studied at the Bartlett is that right yes yeah. and then um, currently also teach uh, design studios yeah we teach yeah so I teach at the CAS um, as does Anna, um, and she also teaches at Nottingham. Okay, and then Anna, during the the production of the graphic novel, you were based in an architect's practice. It makes perfect sense that architects uh, would be so enthusiastic about this project, because in some ways it is like a research and design project. And you talked about iteration earlier. There are so many different versions of the plot and of the style, but then also of the hypothetical technology, mm. I imagine as well. Yeah. And so there's spreads in the book that like represent this newfangled interface, uh, which I can't even begin to describe, except that they look a bit like um, kind of illuminated tendrils emerging from people's palms and fingertips. Mm. And as information expires, kind of like uh, old fruit from a tree just falls off. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, this is incredibly inventive and I'm sure very attractive to people who do design user interfaces. What kind of research did you do in that aspect? There are these very early sketches that Anna did where everything, it's sort of like a bubble that you're surrounded by, so the, the AR is a little bit like the Vitruvian Man or something, it's this sort of... Um, the space inscribed by the limits of your body um, but actually yeah I don't know I mean I wonder does it come out of the practice of drawing even that it, f it feels like it's this little one one hat like sort of manual dexterous fine process it was partly that I think I think mainly it was that um, I felt that there was such an interesting opportunity to be organizing snippets of information but spatially and um, whenever you, whenever you see it uh, an AR interface or in in a film or other other people's representations of it it's often just flat windows that are sort of arrayed around them floating in space and I felt that that was somehow uns unsatisfying and didn't really um, didn't really make use of the interesting fact that 
it it was completely 3D and it could be doing all kinds of other more interesting organizational things. So once I knew that I didn't want it to just be um, as if things were sort of layered up on a invisible hemisphere, then I I felt that you needed to have something that created a bit of order. So then this this idea of it being like a tree or like a, a vine where different things can unfold and grow off it um, seemed to provide a, a really nice way of um, making sure that the whole thing still had structure um, but could become very complex and and spatially beautiful in its mm. own right. And then it all became very interesting once I had that kind of initial idea about everything coming off a kind of main stem but then other smaller kind of secondary stems could come off there and contain other other types of information um because obviously you can you can imagine that you know there's no real mass so then you can play tricks where things kind of concertina into each other or fold out of each other infinitely or um expand into this amazing structure Mm. and um trying to bring a bit of um, pseudo-tactility to it as well, where things kind of stretch and spring back and and kind of flip around. And, and I think part of what I was thinking about was how amazing I found it when I, when I saw the first um, iPod, where the, the fact that you had this little spinny wheel that you moved your finger around yeah. that navigated just a, a list... I remember feeling like that was amazing because it was um, <laughs> it was bringing a sort of action that you found delight in taking to simply just scrolling through a kind of vertical list of options, and I really felt that that was very important as well to have to make it feel um, like it was it was really delightful thing a delightful system to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's even just a pleasure in looking at those representations, you know, of other people using this software. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same kind of pleasure we get whenever we engage with uh, analog things, mm-hmm. and we see the parts working. Yes. And um, or where we interact with organic forms, mm-hmm. and of course these are all illusions meant to comfort us, and kind of uh, seamlessly um, obscure the the baffling binary workings under the hood. <laughs> yes. But um, the, what's interesting to me about that is that the way the graphic novel is represented, actually it starts with graphite, like it starts with pencil on paper. All these drawings are done, um, was it HB? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the same, exactly the same. All these drawings were done with like a very sharp pencil first, yeah. and then they're colored on the computer. But um, you're using this like kind of timeless analog method of representing um, the bleeding edge of of uh, augmented reality. Mm. Yeah, and I think that was that was sort of my approach to the design of this interface as well. So, in terms of references that I actually looked at, I I looked at as as you've uh, noticed, sort of organic forms, but I also looked at things like old family trees or this amazing kind of representation of all of these well it's it's a it's a 
it's very similar. It's a sort of organization of this kind of hierarchy of information about people, but on this organic structural form. And, um, and things like old um, filofaxes, uh, things that mm, flick around, yeah. and clockwork, and <laughs> um, complex mechanisms like orreries and things like that, which are, I've just always found these sorts of things very fascinating. Um, but I think there's absolutely no reason why you can't be thinking about brand new technology, but obviously using, using things sometimes that are ancient. I wonder if this is a point where we can now talk a little more about the story itself and uh, how it emerged and what kinds of uh, influences were at play. I mean, I know, Luke, you're a fan of science fiction and you have a podcast as well about buildings and cities, yeah. <laughs> um, which I've become uh, a fan of. And um, I mean, like, there's, there's these really exhaustive uh, analyses of particular science fiction writers or stories or mm. themes. And so I feel like there's an abyss that we could sink into very briefly around science fiction, what it means to you and how you brought in uh, specific influences to this project. Ooh. The kind of ocean in which it swims, obviously, is kind of cyberpunk. And, but equally, we've been at pains to distance it in various ways from what is, like, essentially a big bag of now very familiar cliches. But the idea of the city as, you know, the city as compost heap in that way that... Um, uh, William Gibson talks about it, or you know, uh, it, the, the the layering of different epochs of history. We, I mean, it, to go back to this idea of the contradictions of the city, which is something we sort of spoke about earlier. I think that that's something which that's sort sort of something which you very much see in cyberpunk. You know, in in whether it's in Blade Runner or whatever, the presence of the old, the derelict, the kind of falling down. Which is always, which is thrown kind of poignantly into this kind of melancholy, like uh, relief by um, by the bright dreams of tomorrow, which are sort of hollowly proclaimed by the like little bits of um, of very shiny uh, futurity that you see. We were sort of trying not to make it a cyberpunk book, though, in various ways, weren't we? Because it does feel like that is. Uh, that that's a kind of a default or that it's something which is a bit played out. I mean, I think that there's a dimension of cyberpunk which in a way is very... which we weren't trying to necessarily get away from, but which I think you have to recognise as being necessarily quite... Um, I don't know, not reactionary, but sort of nostalgic, which is that uh, it seems to be about the city as people were getting excited about it in the late 19th century or something it's the kind of city of like flannery mm. you, you know you sort of drift around and you see exciting things and everything is lived through this filter of um sort of di like mild disenchantment and um and uh, kind of like idiosyncratic aestheticism mm. um and i'm struggling to define what what the real science fictional reference points are for it I mean, in terms of plotting, what I looked at endlessly were William Gibson's books, but I don't think that they were necessarily 
helpful from that point of view. Mm. But there's a, like an incredible compression which he achieves in the better in the better works, where things are really, you know, you have this sense of kind of lift off in um, in Neuromancer and these kinds of books, which are which I and I think a, a sense of like how a scene can actually be really short and and um, and still and still kind of work. I mean, the tone of our book is so completely different from that that it seems a little bit, seems a little bit of a bizarre comparison. Mm. But I'm just thinking, yeah. So, like in books like Neuromancer or yeah. um, movies like Blade Runner, or the books that inspire it, like Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream yeah. of Electric Sheep, there's a kind of tradition of hard-boiled detective fiction yeah. or noir, and the cities in those stories are kind of like these brooding characters in and of themselves. Yeah. And everyone is often kind of concealed in a <clears throat> haze of smoke or fog. And the hats are down, the colors are up. Whereas in this book, I feel like there's a there's like an element of glee or like pop or like celebration yeah. in the urban environment. So that if the city were a character, um or if the city were a song, it would be a pop song. <laughs> and so, like, maybe yeah. the genre is more like cyber pop, if that is a thing, or if we yeah. point it. Yeah. That I would be great. That would be cool. I but, like, the best kind of pop music, the kind of pop music that um, has this, this mm. underpinning of, like, either intense sadness <laughs> or unrequited love or... Um, this kind of bittersweet uh, yeah. element of, the, I guess, being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of fake and real at the same time, uh-huh. in, in, in that sense that, yeah. Well, pop, pop kind of is kind of felt and then also completely cynical, and then somehow you can actually like identify with it again, in even allowing for the fact that you're not having the wall pulled over your eyes about what it is. Um, but I think I think it's it's I'm really glad that it does come across like that because one of the things that I found really hard when I was drawing it was that um, I wanted I wanted it to feel entrancing enough that you would you would understand why the the main character is um, sad to be cut off from it so mm-hmm. the 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 UI and just the city in general needed to feel um, kind of scintillating um, so that you you believed the, the fun that could be available to you if you were in the right tier of society and had the right access and, um, yeah I mean this is going to sound mad but I think that actually a reference for the story is also the big Lebowski mm. in the sense this, <laughs> of the idea of the kind of slacker detective like the detective, the classic noir detective, yeah, is kind of uh, this sort of fallen creature and is animated by certain like unmentionable urges or whatever, but also has these moments of sort of angelic insight. And that we didn't really, we that wasn't maybe they ha- maybe they happen towards the end or whatever, maybe there's one in the book, but that's not really the type of characters that we wanted to have. We wanted to have these people who actually. Are just trying, just trying, just have quite immediate, quite personal goals, but sort of get dragged through into a much bigger story. Um, 
yeah, in I think that process. I, I very much felt when we were writing some of the scenes, even some of the ones later on, that where it does get a little bit kind of action filmy, was that I, I kept trying to think about it in terms of if this were me or one of our friends that found themselves in this situation in this situation yeah um what kind of things would they be saying and how would they be reacting i don't think they would behave in the kind of typical um action hero way where you sort of running around and you're saying now we've got to get to this thing no, and no, do no. that you'd be looking you know, for the first possible opportunity to go home yeah, yeah. <laughs> to go home and yeah. um and just go to bed and try and forget it and and you'd be ready for work tomorrow yeah Yeah. and you'd be really you'd just be you'd just be looking around you and thinking what the what the hell is going on and what what am I meant to be doing and you'd feel confused and befuddled you wouldn't have this kind of sense of determined focus on how to how to save the day you'd you'd find the whole thing very um Mm-hmm. difficult to deal with <laughs> I think what what I like best about like good science fiction is that it's speculative not only about environments and technology but about people and about mm. users mm. and in that sense like science fiction and Square Eyes as a project is inherently architectural because you're doing the work of the designer in some ways and trying to empathize mm. with these unknown characters like yeah. this is what we do is designers anyways right mm. when we imagine how people will be using the things we make yes and so like it's a kind of skill that you must be bringing back in to teaching to some degree i think doing doing drawings in these in this way with with kind of as much um detail of of the sort of um pieces of a real life that's being lived in the space is um is the way that i i I try to encourage students to think when they're designing when they're designing spaces as well um, so I, I try to I try to encourage people to sort of think about a scene that they would like to happen in their mm. in their potential in their in their proposed building because um, there should be spatial consequences from that as well isn't it I mean it's yeah. probably going it's probably going to reveal that the room is the wrong shape Yes, well, exactly. But I, I, yeah, exactly. So I, I try and get them to, to think about it in terms of what, what's the quality of the experience that's achievable in this scene, and what, what are the, how do you then need to change the architecture to make that better or make that work in the way that you'd like to. That's so interesting because I feel like there is a, there is a strong sense of cinematography in the graphic novel. Mm. I mean, in graphic novels in general, but in this one in particular where the angle is always changing and we're other we're in some instances with the character looking out and oftentimes we're like embodying the character looking at our own hands engaging mm-hmm. with an interface but then sometimes um, there are these really acrobatic kind of pans and long shots as we follow um, a procession through a space mm-hmm. as well and I feel like yeah that's something that um Maybe we've forgotten, in a way, when it comes to designing spaces, because we always have this perpetual shot mm. in, in like the 3D model, yeah. where we can see every nook and cranny whenever we need to. Very rarely do we define um, a kind of storyboard for a space. Yeah, it's a real delight when I, when I get to 
do this as well. So I do architectural illustration for other um, other firms. And I, well, one in particular that I had last year was um, really enjoyable to do because they commissioned me to do five drawings. And, um, and but before those five drawings, we did a whole series of sketches that were all um, scenes exploring how people, how they, how they wanted and then through drawing how it seemed like people would use these spaces that they were proposing and then we selected five of them to make into more elaborate um, finished scenes but they were all all sort of fragments of lives within bits of the architecture without it being the kind of overall scene where you see everything in one shot and um, and I think that's it, it makes the experience of viewing those images more more powerful to my mind because you you, you are doing this um, kind of cinema cinematography trick where you're you're framing things in such a way that you don't need to show the whole of the facade you can just show this bit of the facade with the the brick texture that's being proposed and a bit of the window and then through that window you see what's happening in the kitchen and then through the kitchen you see to the other side of the house and you see through that window into the courtyard beyond and you see all of these different bits of a scene and you get actually I feel like more of a sense of of what what this whole place would be like um well that's how you experience space isn't it you experience yeah absolutely it, uh, but also like in a sense that those kind of drawings are making concrete sort of imaginative operation that should be going on in the design anyway, shouldn't it? It should be, in some sense, when you when you think, oh, well, it'd be nice to have the door there. A part of what's going on is the imaginative inhabitation of the, mm. the spatial results of that, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And what was fun with this project was that, um, as I was doing it, they were, they were responding with the with the, the the proper architectural drawings to the drawings that I was making in perspective, so they were uh, as these drawings were were kind of coming about. We were we were tweaking things and saying actually yeah, it would be really nice if we just pushed that back so that we could get a seat out here on the veranda, and then they mm. could be talking to the people that are coming home at the same time as they're preparing their dinner and all of this. It was a really, it was really enjoyable to ha be able to have that exchange, mm -hmm. rather than as what usually happens, which is that the architecture has all been set and I receive um, the information and I just, I just draw it up, mm -hmm. um, which is is still an enjoyable experience because it's always been the thing I've loved most. Mm -hmm. Most was doing the beautiful drawing of of the architecture. Um, but it was really fun to, to be able to have this kind of back and forth, even as I was doing the drawings. I guess just as a way of concluding and coming back to Square Eyes, um, as I was reading it, it kind of, it seemed so obvious that this could spin out into other mediums or become other projects. Um, and like speaking of cinematography, there's something there's so much potential for this to be a really awesome movie, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, what kind of afterlife do you see for this project? Well, there are different layers to that, aren't there? I mean, who knows? It might turn out to be a movie. It's, uh, it's not impossible. Um, I think probably we wouldn't do it 
or well, I think it would it would be something where for me it's the, the, there's very strongly cinematic qualities about the book but equally I don't think the story works as a as a feature so whatever would happen would happen would hopefully involve someone with really good new ideas turning it into something else in the process of of making it a movie I think that there's a different kind of and then there's a question there's a sort of different question which is what what are we doing post the book in the sense like what does the what has the book done for done to us um and I think we're still trying to figure that out to some extent, aren't we? I mean, I mm. think that the that the design which has gone into it is, I think, has real integrity and there's a real basis for, um, like, exploring that as a design practice, well, you know, all of those different dimensions of it. I think that we haven't totally ruled out doing any more graphic fiction. I think there is a possibility that something might happen later in the year I mean actually after we finished it we said okay well we're not going to work together anymore because that was too difficult <laughs> then something came we up always say that <laughs> something came up and then that, that might be the last thing instead and you know <laughs> maybe there'll be a last thing after that it's possible um, yeah well, I think it's it's certainly brought up a lot of um, a lot of things that I'm not not quite ready to just forget about entirely yet I think what I find really enjoyable is is this sort of speculation about society in the future um, and thinking about what what things we want to want to make but also still using uh, kind of tools and references from the past is is how I really enjoy working and what went into this book as well I think that there are all sorts of possible yeah cross fertilizations of those sorts of things I mean if you were to characterize this book as being sort of you know it's kind of like early 20th century illustration sort of meeting um, kind of late 20th century because of virtual paranoia or whatever I mean from the point of view of what of stuff that's next you know the future city still has to get designed somehow, and you know, augmented reality. I think it's not, it's not settled. They need more ideas, <laughs> um, and I think that, in terms of sort of speculative design as a pursuit, I think that there is a positive need for it, but for to find a way of doing it which has a like critical integrity. Like I think that there is a risk of doing when you're doing speculative design that it is pure sort of self-indulgence I mean yeah and I think for me it's partly about trying to anchor it in these very very specific moments and these like deeply um, fleshed out uh, scenarios I think that you start to get to a very interesting and rich place with it and uh, Luke thank you so much for your time well thank you very much You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Dorothy Ashby. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. 
Thank you to Anna and Luke. Special thanks to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.